You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This is like having Goebbels in the barracks through the internet, TikTok, and so forth. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. we got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Jan Kahlberg and Colonel Stephen Hamilton of the Army Cyber Institute at West Point We're going to be discussing cognitive force protection. All right, Joe. So before we jump into our stories this week, we've Mm -hmm. got some follow-up this week. You want to share with us uh, what do we have here? We have an email from Obata who writes, Hello, Dave and Joe. Big fan here from the Middle East. I recently discovered your podcast. And please allow me to thank you for your great work and the super informative and educational content. Well, thank you. You're welcome. I recently bought a couple of YubiKeys to increase my security in the cyberspace and purchased a password manager. I immediately started enabling two-factor authentication on all accounts through the physical keys where applicable and also through the Authenticator app, which Mm -hmm. is an app you can usually get for free. Yep. I did this for almost all of my accounts. However, when opting in for two-factor authentication on my Apple account, I was amazed to discover that Apple only offers 2FA via SMS or a mobile number. I always try to avoid two-factor via SMS for SIM swap reasons, which is a good reason to avoid it. Yeah. There are other reasons as well. Also, I don't think it's ideal, especially in countries where inactive phone numbers might be active again for a different user, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, everywhere. It happens here in the U.S., I was wondering what your take is on this and why you think Apple, one of the biggest security advocates, only allows multi-factor authentication via SMS. Keep up the good work and thank you. Mm, so okay. I'm not an Apple user, Dave. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> so let me just say that one of the things that I often say as uh, a longtime uh, Apple user, Apple giveth and Apple taketh away. Ah. And <laughs> so while there are many, many good things about being in the Apple ecosystem and overall I enjoy it very much, there are also some very frustrating things about being in the Apple ecosystem, one of which is uh, their lack of transparency They share with you what they want to share with you, and that's it. There are no user forums where there are active Apple employees who you can strike up a conversation with and sort of ask, why are you doing this or what are you doing? Or, God forbid, what are your plans? Right. right? (laughs) (laughs) So, but specifically to Obata's point, I mean, I think he is mostly right in that Apple does not so far allow YubiKeys. Right. But Apple does have additional multi-factor authentication options beyond just an SMS. Specifically, again, Apple very much wanting you to be part of their ecosystem. They allow you to authenticate via other trusted devices. Right. In other words, if I'm sitting here at my Mac and I want to authorize something on my iPhone, I can opt for Apple to send me a code directly to my Mac that I can then use to authenticate my iPhone. Right. And you, Google does something similar with Android. I logged in to the Chrome browser recently mm-hmm. and it said, check your phone. And there was a question on my phone. Do you want to authorize this access to your account from Chrome? Right. That's not an SMS though. That's that's a different 
different protocol. Correct. And it, yeah, so it's, it's baked into the operating systems Correct. to do this. Um, and on, on planet Apple, uh, it is on both the, in iOS and Mac OS and they, they work together. And when it works, it works quite well. It's kind of Apple's thing, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, you can't fault Apple for making stuff that works. It, it usually just works. Right. And Apple's right. very good at that and very good at user experience management. Yeah. But I, I think uh, there is also the point that, like, how does something become a trusted device? Well, usually that involves sending an SMS code. Right. So at some point <laughs> in, the, in the Apple ecosystem, you have to, if you want to establish something as being a trusted device, there's an SMS involved. Right. So that's just the way it is. I, I agree it would be great if Apple allowed you to use things like YubiKeys. Apple tends to not embrace hardware made by other people. Right. So perhaps someday we will see an Apple version of a YubiKey. And there is a Google version we'll of it called the Titan. Yep. That runs on the universal two-factor. So maybe Apple could embrace that. Perhaps. And build, a, build an Apple device that runs on universal two-factor. Yeah. I, I suspect, you know, from Apple's point of view, the hardware that they're counting on is other existing Apple devices. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it could be an Apple Watch, could be your iPhone, could be your iPad, could be your Mac. So, again, ecosystem kind of thing. So I think our listener is mostly correct. It is uh, frustrating that uh, you can't use a hardware key directly with any of the Apple OSs, as far as I know. I'm getting my information here from uh, Apple's support page on two-factor authentication. But I don't see that changing because I suspect from Apple's point of view, they aren't just relying on SMS because they, they do have certain types of two-factor baked into the OS. And uh, it seems as though they feel like that's, for the moment, good enough. Mm -hmm. Thanks to Obata for sending that in. It's an excellent question. Uh, and, of course, we would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, you can email us. It's hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe. Well, why don't we jump into our stories for this week? And coincidentally, right. <laughs> my, my story, I'll, I'll start things off. And my story, this comes from the folks over at CyberScoop. This is a story written by Tim Starks. And it's titled, Google to Make Multi-Factor Authentication Its Default Mode. All right. <laughs> this is good you, news. Google. This is good news. Yeah. So um, oh, about a month or so ago when it was uh, World Password Day, uh, Google announced that they're going to basically make it uh, default, that when you enroll uh, with a Google account, they're going to nudge you towards having multi-factor authentication. And, you know, we've seen multiple studies from Google, from Microsoft that say that if you've got multi-factor turned on, your account is 99% less likely to be compromised. Yes. So I think this is really good news. And I, I think it also points to the fact that a big part of the resistance to multi-factor has been that it, in, it adds friction. Right. It slows you down. But I really think that's becoming more and more of a non-issue these days. I would agree. Yeah? Yeah, I think it's, it's becoming more of the accepted way of doing things. I, I, maybe we as users are becoming just used to it yeah. because enough people are asking us to do it. And I don't really think there's a big difference in use case whether or not I get my multi-factor authentication from an SMS message or a uh, authenticator application or a hardware solution like a YubiKey. Right. It's all essentially the same level of, of work. I would actually maybe even argue that the hardware key is a little bit less because all you have to do is push a button. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, I, I really think hopefully this will lead to other organizations, going back to our earlier story, perhaps right. even Apple, Maybe. <laughs> making it the default. It, it seems as though things are headed that way. Yeah, and uh, I think Microsoft's going to have to do this soon for their Microsoft 365 product. Yeah, it seems to be the way things are going. I guess hats off to Google for leading the way when it comes to this thing. I was going to say taking the bullet because uh, right. some people are going to criticize them again because of friction. And, and it's not required. I guess the point here is that if you don't want two-factor, you'll be able to opt out. Right. But who's going to do that? You know, they <laughs> right. they want you to do the right thing. They users, want you to be safe. Users have a history of not opting out of things. Right, <laughs> right, absolutely. So, again, this is over on CyberScoop, uh, written by Tim Starks. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, that is my story this week. Joe, what do you have for us? Dave, my story comes from NBCChicago.com. It's a news channel out there, Channel 5. Uh, a local affiliate, NBC affiliate. And uh, they have a story of a couple from the area that they just uh, address as K and J. Okay. Uh, because they don't want their names being out there. Uh, they had deposited retirement savings with Fidelity. Mm, okay. And that's, you know, if, for our international listeners, there's a lar- it's a large financial firm here in the U.S. It may be international. I don't know. Yeah. In June of 2020, someone managed to get into their account and changed their contact information, mm. and then proceeded to make two withdrawals in the amount of $20,000 each. Wow. Right? Fidelity flagged the transactions as suspicious and froze their account, and sent a letter via the mail saying, hey, we've noticed some fraudulent activity on your account. Mm. Now, I think it's interesting. Fidelity maintains that they tried to contact K&J on this, mm-hmm. but they sent a letter, and I, I'd like to know... What address did they send the letter to? Right. Right. Did they right. send the letter to the to where K and J live, or did they send the letter to the new location that was entered in the contact information? Sure. Yeah. That's not really addressed in this story, but I would like to know that. That mm-hmm. would be key to where I come down on this story. Okay. The couple did notice a dip in their balances. But they said, we just figured it was pandemic craziness. Now, you remember— well, <laughs> First of all, I'd like to know how much they have in their retirement account that $40,000 could be written off as a— Fluctuation. <laughs> it doesn't need to be. It doesn't need to be a lot. If you remember, in March of 2020, if you were watching your account balances, it was it was difficult to watch. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> right? enough. Yep. So yep. fortunately, things have recovered. But they only became aware of the theft when they actually started getting statements from Chase, mm. another financial institution. Right. That they had an account with a zero balance, and they don't remember opening this account. Hmm. But somebody had gone in and in Jay's name opened an account at Chase, broke into the account at Fidelity, wired the money from Fidelity to Chase, and then out of the account from Chase to wherever they were going to take it from. Hmm. When they did notify Fidelity of the fraud, it was six months later, and Fidelity essentially said, well, tough. Our policy is you have to notify us within 30 days of a fraudulent charge or fraudulent Hmm. activity. Okay. And they said, you're not getting your money back. Hmm. Since the investigation has begun by this news organization— Fidelity has decided, okay, we'll give you your money back. (laughs) (laughs) Support your local news, folks. Right, exactly. Support your local news. (laughs) (laughs) These K&J have gotten their money back. We don't know how the bad guys got access to the Fidelity account, but it could be through phishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, It could be through credential stuffing. It could be social engineering by calling Fidelity and, and pretending to be the person. But they had enough information on the victims that they were able to open another bank account in their name. So they had a lot of information about these people. Okay. They probably even had copies of documents or maybe even fake documents yeah. of these things. There are a few things the victims could have done here that would have would have made this 
impossible. Number one, they could have practiced better password hygiene, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Not not putting a password on to let somebody guess it. Of course, if they if these people called into Fidelity and and we don't know how they how they got into the account, that's also not covered in the story. Right. I'd like to know that. They could use multi-factor authentication. Always use multi-factor authentication. If you're going to do one thing, multi-factor authentication. <laughs> right, right. And they could have been more diligent and paid more attention to their statements. Uh, there seems to be in the retirement investment community this invest it and forget about it. And we tell each other that so that we don't go into our retirement funds and view it as an asset before retirement, mm. right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember growing up, my dad would say, just put the money in your retirement account and forget about it. It's gone. Right. Don't think right. about it. Let interest do its magic. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. And that's great advice, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to it. Yeah. You should log into these accounts at least at least monthly and just make sure, you know, look at your transactions. If you have stock accounts, look at your dividends. Maybe you want different investments. You should be managing this money on a regular basis. This is what you're going to retire on mm-hmm. for the most part. And one of the biggest reasons is as this thing grows, it may very well become your biggest investment. A lot of times we hear your biggest investment is your house. But if you have been saving for retirement since your 20s and now you're in your 50s or 60s, your, your retirement is probably your biggest investment. Sure. It deserves your undivided attention. Right? Yeah. I'm not blaming the victims here. These are just things they could have done better. I also have some things that Fidelity could have done better Mm. as well. Number one, they could require that their clients use multi-factor authentication of some kind. Yeah. That could be a requirement. And I would like to see financial institutions enact that requirement. Yeah. Some way. Why not? Right. Right? (laughs) See, if Google can do it, Chase can do it. Right. (laughs) Fidelity can do it. When you notice fraudulent activity, do more than just send a letter. You know, right. right. Don't just say, well, we sent you a letter. Yeah. What's the rush? I right. mean, you know. <laughs> Finally, when someone changes contact information on an account, have a better process than just accepting it. Mm. Right. I'm not sure what that looks like. You know, I'd have to think about this, but keep the old information is number one. If someone changes the phone number, call the old phone number and see who answers and ask if, it, if it's the account holder. Yeah. If it's the account holder, say, somebody has changed the phone number on your account. Are you okay with that? And if they say no, then you stop everything. Right. I would also say that if someone changes their address, you should send a letter to both the old address and the new address and say, we've had an address change. You know, if this is wrong, please let us know. Yeah. You know, because again, why not? Yep. It's cheap and easy to do. If you're going to say that you notice fraudulent activity, don't just send the letter via regular mail. Maybe that is something you send registered mail, return well, receipt yeah. requested. Right. So, I mean, and you think that's also in Fidelity's interest so that they have a receipt that they actually were proactive that about they it. did this transaction. Right. We yeah. sent you a letter and here's when we sent it. Right. So, yeah. Cost you three bucks. Yep. Anyway, the story has a good ending. I'm, I'm glad that these people got their money back. Enable multi-factor authentication on every account that you can and do mm-hmm. that now. It really, really, really protects you against these kind of attacks. Yeah, and I would also go as far to say if your bank, if your if whoever you have your retirement account with, if they don't have the capability for you to have multi-factor on these accounts, yeah. maybe it's time to start looking around. At the very least, make some noise and say, how can you tell me that this is secure if you don't have these security basics in place? Correct. All right. Well, interesting stories this week. Of course, we will have links to them in the show notes if you want to dig into the details. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Our catch of the day comes from a listener named Dole. And Dole says, finally, I can quit my life of toil. Uh, Dave, (laughs) why don't you read this email? All right. It says... 
Dear sir, my name is Miss Eleanor Ward, a wealth manager and head of global payments with Lloyd's Private Banking in United Kingdom. I'm contacting you regarding the state of a deceased client with a similar last name and an investment placed under our bank's management worth GBP 6.2 million British pounds sterling. <laughs> he left no next of kin and I contact you independently as no one is informed of this communication. What I propose is that since I have exclusive access to his file, you will be made the beneficiary of these funds after the legalization process is diligently carried out. I hold the key to these funds and from my years of experience as a banker, we see so much cash being reassigned daily so nobody is getting hurt. Kindly express your interest by writing back to me. Whatever your response is will be taken in good faith. Regards, Eleanor Ward. So many little red flags here. Um, <laughs> first off, it's uh, GBP 6.2 million British pounds sterling, mm-hmm. which is what GBP means, right? Yeah. Great British pounds. It ain't real money, ain't, Joe. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Couple of misspellings, uh, a big capitalization error in the middle of uh, I hold the key. Right. The funds. <laughs> Pretty good catch there, doll. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. All right. Well, we do appreciate uh, our listeners sending that in. We would love to hear from you. If you have uh, a catch of the day for us, you can send it to us. Send it to hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Jan Kahlberg and Colonel Stephen Hamilton. They are from the Army Cyber Institute at West Point. And our conversation centered on the notion of cognitive force protection. Here's my conversation with Jan Kahlberg and Colonel Stephen Hamilton. We always think in the Army of tr- trying to protect our soldiers, protect the force. And, and it could be everything from if you don't get your dental checkup, you go to Category 4 and you can't deploy. So we've got to make sure that you're, you know, you're not going to need a root canal when you're deployed. So everything from that to going outside the gate and going to maybe seedy places that you know are around some of the military posts. You know, sometimes they make those off limits. So we do these various things to protect our force. And we also run force protection drills, you know, active shooter drills, those kinds of things. And really what we kind of identified is it seemed like there's really not anyone focusing on what happens when the soldier is protected, he's on post, but then he goes back to his barracks, gets on TikTok and starts being influenced by the content that they're receiving. So that was kind of the genesis of it. But what we decided is that we needed to term it something that would spark the interest of commanders in the the vernacular of what they're used to, which is force protection. So that's where we came up with cognitive force protection as being, this is still a a protection issue. It's just on a different level. It's not physical like like you're normally used to. Historically, the will to fight has determined outcomes in wars. Uh, one example is, for instance, the Finnish Soviet Winter War of 3940, where the Finnish will to fight made them overcome climate, lack of equipment, and really did a really great fight against the Soviet onslaught, pure on their uh, mental strength. It matters because the Germans really watched how the Soviet didn't do well, and they did the attack on Soviet Union in 41, stunning to them. The Soviets had a real will to fight. That was before uh, Land Lease and so forth. And for, uh, 41, 42, against all odds, did a formidable job uh, to keep this up. 
the relative fight we see in Korea Canal, we see it in the Pacific Campaign, we see it for the Second World War, Korea, and so forth. We maybe have lost that connection to it, but I think our adversaries really understand it, especially the Russians, who see this way of breaking down our will to fight, this cognitive attack as a preparation of, of the battlefield. Yeah, it reminds me of that that old saying, you know, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. And I, I suppose what this means is you can't just look at the number of tanks you have, the number of troops you have, the number of helicopters you have, that, as you say, this this will to fight is is a key part of uh, measuring the strength of your, your fighting force, yes? Oh, yeah, definitely. And also, as Stephen and I were sitting in his office when we invented the term cognitive force protection, because we realized, which this is like more to visualize it, that this is like having Goebbels in the barracks through the internet and TikTok and so forth, as Stephen mentioned. In the past, was there more control over this, over the, the flow of information that would get to the soldiers did the powers that be have a greater ability to control the, the possibility of them being influenced by things? I would say that there wasn't a need to in the past. Just because if you if you look at how media is consumed and in the advent of I mean, social media, I guess I would say, I think I got on Facebook the first time in like 2006 or so. So prior to that, those dates, the information you got was primarily either through TV or, you know, more reputable news sources well, I could go back in time and say that I, I was on a, a DOS computer and downloaded the Anarchist Cookbook, you know, when I was in middle school. But right. I'm a one-off probably. If I told the rest of my classmates that I was doing that, I don't think that they would even understand what I was talking about. But now it's just the the ease of access of the information and the ability to create content. That's where everything is kind of flipped on its head. So, And the fact that the social media companies have done their best to try to serve the content to keep you on their page. Um, which inherently causes people to create content that they can pull people down rabbit holes. So I don't think we ever had the protection for it. We just didn't need it. But I think now we have to recognize what's going on and the, the marketing that's happening and the, the way the social media companies are keeping these soldiers on online. And they're, they're not even, it's just their algorithms. They're not doing it intentionally um, to, to help out our adversary, but the adversaries are leveraging that technology to be able to get into their heads. And that that's the part that I'm worried about. Uh, i like to add to that. I, I also see it, I completely agree with Colonel Hamilton that we didn't have the need. And, and because you can't see the information from earlier. Let's look on the pictures from, from doesn't matter, Battle of the Bulge or, or Korea and so on. You see the platoon leader sits, a leader of character, and they read Star and Stripes like the only source of information together we will eat their ashes. So there's no other impact. There's no other competing news sources. And, and I think the problem here, as Colonel Hamilton mentioned, is they, they go back and they hook up to these resources. And, and there's a different way to approach the soldier today. Today, uh, which other researchers at Army Cyber Institute uh, have identified as Major Dawson, you can actually create a shell company as an adversary and buy the profiles of military personnel from social media companies. You can already get those data sets. You can preemptively seek out how to target military personnel. And, and this is completely a, a, a new operational environment. How do we fight this? I mean, is, is, it, is it a matter of restricting what the soldiers are able to see? Is it putting uh, you know a counter-narrative in front of them? Is it making sure that 
that you're putting the message in front of them that you that you want them to see? How do you get the truth to these soldiers who need to see it? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and we've thought a bit about this to try to understand what's the right way to do it. Limiting the information is just not going to work. You can't tell someone not to go to TikTok. We could try to ban it on government phones, but if it's their personal device, it's too, it's too hard. And they're going to do what they, what they uh, are interested in doing. What I'm kind of proposing is that Army's good at training. We just need to add some training and that helps them understand how to differentiate news. And, and I first heard of this, I think it was a few years ago, I heard that there was a university course, some, I think in England, that was basically a media course of like, how do you identify fake news? There's a, a brewing podcast I listened to, and they used to play this game, which was basically find the fake. So they'll read like three news articles, and you have to guess like which one is the fake news. I think making something entertaining like that, uh, training for the soldiers where you, we, we create some different types of news, or maybe we take some that, that's actual fake news out there, present it to them, and have them try to, to decipher that and help them learn how to determine and how to ver- verify and fact-check information that they're receiving I think that that's the best way to do it. Really give give them the tools to be able to identify that. In addition, I think Jan and I've also talked about, you know, it's it's not unheard of for us to buy. I think at West Point, there's a, there's certain subscriptions that we buy, like Wall Street Journal, and 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 as we buy as an organization, and so purchasing some reputable news sources and and uh, and providing that to the soldiers, that's that's another option as well. I personally think that the training is what's going to be important. Changing the way that they consume information by educating them. That's, to me, like the more long-term fix because then they can identify things that we're not even, we don't even know is going to exist in the future. So what Stephen mentioned uh, about reliable sources, I think is a good way. The reason why people go to these uh, clickbaits and so forth is because it's free. So let's say we provide 10 free uh, journals. It could be Time Magazine, Atlantic, LA Times, Dallas Morning News, Chicago Tribune, and so forth. Like, like a spectrum of different outlets that has its own political camp. And yes, say this you can log in as a service member, and here you got, got news. I can guarantee you that people are going to start using these sources because they get tired of clickbait. And trying to just click through uh, how actors look 500 years after it was in fourth, you know, all these clickbaits. Right. <laughs> so I think that is a really high return on investment. I also think that, as Colonel Hamilton mentioned before, earlier in this discussion about cognitive uh, force protection, is that it's also up to officers and leaders, non-commissioned officers, to be leader of character and show an interest in what the soldiers discuss and be open to discuss it. And, and act as they, you know, in past time was, was a foundation for, for the understanding of uh, how the world operates. Because a lot of the soldiers, a lot of the enlisted, they're really young. And another thing I think also is that we maybe have in the training, when you teach grad students, that you can train them pretty quick to evaluate sources. And I think there's something to learn there. Colonel Hamilton, is is there a leadership opportunity here? You know, I, I've seen in the past week or so, there's been uh, some folks saying that there needs to be a push to be perhaps more deliberate about what TV channel we have on in the mess hall to put in front of our soldiers. And one of the challenges there is that people have strong feelings about their politics and they don't want to feel as though they're silenced. You know, could things like that help put more of a, a neutral fact-based presentation of, of news 
in front of the fighting forces. Yeah, I think there's an opportunity there to do that. I know I'm thinking of when I went to I was go, uh, went to a gym back when I was at Norfolk uh, for a course, and it was the first time I actually saw like they had uh, all the different news sources. And oddly enough, they were actually arranged where the far left was MSNBC and the far right was Fox News. Like literally, the way they were arranged, I thought that was just ironic. <laughs> From but, left um, to right, that's yeah, funny. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody had to have thought through that because it's just it, it it was yeah it was too obvious to me but right. you know I looked at it and I'm like well this is this is fair enough at least you you've put it out there and you've even put it in the correct order I think that there's an opportunity to do that I will say that you know I think at TV and it's like I feel like it's almost an archaic thing like everybody's on their own phone looking at stuff uh, I mean I I haven't been to a, a mess hall with young soldiers in a, in a little while it's probably been a year or two but. I don't remember seeing a TV and I think people were probably all on their phones in there. So um, understanding how, how the soldiers consume content is, is a big thing. And I think, you know, I have teenage boys and they'll present me different things. And sometimes I ask them, I'm like, and, and I've tried to teach them like, you know, how did you, how'd you arrive at this information? Where did you get it from? And, and it usually starts with something simple, like a funny meme. And, and it's interesting how clever that our adversaries are of taking like something like Pepe the frog or whatever it may be. And then and it's supposed to be something that was kind of innocuous. And then they're slowly adding different symbols and imagery to it and then words to it and then kind of and kind of leading you down a path. And so that's that part is is a little trickier. I don't I don't think that just changing what we see on the TV, I think there definitely should be some thought put into a deliberate thought put into what we put up there. But I think that the the real extreme and the in the in the more uh, leading things are, that is going to be the interactive content that they have on their phones. Is the leadership receptive to this message? Are the folks who are higher up uh, in the, your organizations, are, is this uh, something that has their attention? Um, right now, it, it, it is kicking off a lot. And, and uh, we have our uh, information warfare team lead, uh, Major Jess Dawson, who's been leading the effort. And she's been interacting with uh, a lot of the, the general officers in the Army Mostly focused on extremism in the army, which we're having an extremism stand down day, I think, next week. Um, so there, there is an acknowledgement that, that there's some extremism in our ranks. And that is, I, I would say it's, it's a lot of it's fueled by online content. Um, and so uh, that part has their attention more so because it's just more of a problem that, that we're starting to see. Um, mm -hmm. so there, there is getting some recognition with that. I will say that, that, like I said before at the beginning, you know, this term cognitive force protection is key because I, it seems like sometimes when we talk with senior leaders, they're like, well, I can't control this. And, and so it, it is difficult. It's not something that, that you can control the same way you control physical things, but it's some, it doesn't mean we can't acknowledge it and try to understand how to um, help educate the force to try, to try to get at solving the problem. But yeah, I, I mean, you can immediately say as soon as you tell someone, oh, well, the soldiers shouldn't be looking at this. Well, we can't you know, there's freedom of speech and there's, you know, we, we're not going to stop them from from getting on all, all online things. I mean, that would be ideal for us, but it's not going to work uh, mm -hmm. at all. So we've got to figure out a solution to this kind of a hard problem. Uh, but it doesn't mean we, can we shouldn't just stand by and say, well, we can't do anything about it at all. So um, the key is to try to understand it and characterize it in such a way that, that we can take action on it. As Colonel Hamilton points out, they can't, like the Soviets, create the Department of Truth and, and put political commissars in the ranks. Mm. We still have a free society. We still have Bill of Rights. But they're still in uniform. 
and they still have to be loyal to the U.S. Constitution and follow the rules and norms of this society. So um, I think what would really stand uh, us uh, when we look at this is how people can get carried away with TikToks and making videos and so on, meanwhile they're in uniform. Yes, the uh, seductive power of social media, I don't know if that's the right word, but how people can get really carried away for these few seconds or minutes of fame on social media and, and just lose all contact and boundaries. All right, Joe, what do you think? Well, I'm glad to see that there are people thinking about the mental state of the warfighters here in the United States. Mm. So the will to fight is very important. And if an adversary can impact it, they will mm-hmm. because it only benefits them. Right. It's generally a non-kinetic activity that's easily deniable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it it can impact the effectiveness of, of troops. Yeah. Well, I mean, history has, you know— be- Papering the enemy, right? Dropping right. flyers or broadcasting, uh, you know, radio over the borders. You know, yep. to say you're, you know, run away, run away, that sort of thing. Right. Historically, we and other nations have been able to control the message through mm. things like classic media, you know, newsreels, stars and stripes, and the like, those kind of things. But now we have social media that is designed to keep you engaged, and the adversaries are using those algorithms. Uh, to get inside of people's heads mm-hmm. and weaken their will to fight. That's really dangerous. You know, like I've said before, this is not something that these social media companies are doing deliberately. This is a an emergent tactic being used by adversarial nations based on the design, the inherent design of these social media platforms. Mm-hmm. They're, mm-hmm. they're essentially weaponizing these social media platforms. Sure. Banning social media for all soldiers and Marines and airmen and, and sailors will not work. That's just not feasible. Colonel Hamilton has a great point that that you're not going to be able to do that because of the First Amendment, right? These people still have rights. You can't just say, nope, no Facebook for you. I think it's really interesting that Colonel Hamilton talks about how his kids start their news understanding from memes, right? Mm -hmm. They they get a meme and and that begins the investigation (laughs) of what's going on. Yes. No, I think memes are funny. I enjoy them, but they're not a good place to start getting your news. And I actually like... The approach these guys are talking about using an educational approach, making bona fide news sources available to people mm-hmm. uh, and using that as your first source of news. Yeah. You shouldn't be using memes as your first source of, of news. You can use memes for entertainment about the news, but you should already be informed about the news when you see the meme, <laughs> right? That yeah. should, that's the idea. You should be reading the newspaper, whatever newspaper it is you choose. And then when you see the meme, you go, oh, I get it. That's funny. And I understand that meme because I read that in the Wall Street Journal today. Right. <laughs> Educating everybody when it comes to critical thinking. Yes. I, I mean, uh, just so so key to, to all of this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Jan Kalberg and Colonel Stephen Hamilton from the Army Cyber Institute at West Point for joining us. We really do appreciate them taking the time to be on our show. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. And of course, we want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. 